0: Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com go ahead and grab your Bible. Turn to 1 Kings tonight. If you received a call this evening, you heard me tell you we're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapter number 7 and 8 tonight. You say, well, that is a lot of verses. Well, I'm going to be honest, congregation, whenever we went through the book of Exodus, we saw a lot of dimensions and a lot of lengths and a lot of details that were overwhelming to the preacher. I have not got to the point where I'm that interesting or able to you <laughs> gleam anything from so many cubits of feet and talking about the the size of the tabernacle, what color things are. So I want to let you know as I evolve and become a better preacher, we'll be able to do that. But tonight in chapter number 7, we're going to gleam. There's only a couple of things I'm going to pull from 7 before we go into 8. But in chapter number 7, we see from the previous chapter, he spent, Solomon, who we're talking about, spent at least four years working on the No, he spent seven years working on the the, the temple there where God is going to have his presence. But he spends four years in the chapter 7 working on his own home, his own palace, as well as governmental buildings that he'll go there to preside over the civil issues going on in Israel. So we're going to glean some of those here in chapter number 7 before we go into 8. The reason being, in chapter number 7, it repeats a lot of what we've already studied. But tonight I want you to follow along with me in chapter number seven as we just look at the first few verses. Solomon was building his own house thirteen years, and he finished his entire house. Now we see that it took him four years. He began after four years from the previous chapters. After four years, he started working on the the the, the temple, and then now after thirteen years, you're just saying your numbers aren't adding up. Well, you know my numbers are not my strong suit, but I do know that he took seven years to work on his house, at the temple, and in four years to work there at his own house. In this section, we're actually going to see in verse number two, he built the house of the force of the Lebanon. The length was a hundred cubits, and the breadth fifty cubits, and its height thirty cubits, and he built it on four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers, and there were in the forty five pillars, fifteen in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite windows in three tiers and all the doorways and windows had square frames and the windows was opposite windows in three tiers. At this point, he's talking about his home. Now he'll switch gears, and in the middle of the chapter, around verse thirteen, you'll notice that the author is writing, and he all—it seems like he goes off the script, and he'll start talking about the temple again. But in verse number verse number six, and he made the hall of pillars. Here we see that there's a canopy over in verse number six, and he made in verse seven the hall of the throne, which was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. In verse number 7... Here we learned that he is making a place where silver ju- judgments were taking place. Now, I, I will also like to let you know that here it doesn't mention very much, but we'll see it later in 1 Kings 10, 19 through 20 of the throne of Solomon. If you want to turn there, you can or you can jot it down. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 19 through 20, the throne had six steps. The throne had a round top and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests rest, while twelve lines stood there, one on each end of the step, on the six steps. It was like of any that were ever, never made in any kingdom. There the chronicle or the, 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 the history is telling us that Solomon's throne was unique. There was nothing else like it. We don't see it mentioned here in chapter number 7 because mainly in chapter 7 we're talking about the buildings. Uh, however, in chapter 7, later on in 13, we'll actually get down to the details of the utensils and the bowls that are used but I want to just focus tonight a little bit just a few minutes on the throne room of Solomon we see in, in verse number six that there's the hall of pillars and also in verse seven the hall of the throne where they're to pronounce judgment even the hall of judgment whenever you had an issue whenever you had an alt against somebody else as you lived in Israel you couldn't take it to the supreme court like you could here in America you could take it to a local magistrate here in America and you can move up the ladder until you finally have the opportunity to have your case heard by the supreme court. Well, the supreme leader or the supreme judge in this land was Solomon. So he made this place and we can see from the throne room his importance. We also understand in biblical times that the train of a king would signify how important they were. If they had a long train, if it was something like a robe and it trains, but mostly if you weren't understanding what I mean by a train, If you've ever been to a wedding where a bride would come down the aisle and have her train behind her and she would have one of the maidens come behind her and make sure the train goes down the aisle, don't get snagged on anything. But in biblical times, the longer the train, the more important the the person was who wore it. And we can also see in Isaiah chapter number 6 that the Lord's train filled the temple, the edges and the fringes of his robe filled completely the temple. That's what Isaiah saw. So the person who was wearing that train was exceedingly important. In fact, uh, there's another place where we can talk about a throne. And I want to let you know tonight, as we talked about Solomon's throne, we talked about the two lions on each side and how there were six lions on this side and six on that side, six steps coming up to the, the sovereign king of Israel, Solomon. There is still a throne. In fact, it's found in Revelation chapter number 4, 1 through 3. As John the Revelator, you might remember this when we study Revelation together. After this I looked and behold a store a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and carline. and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Uh, Notice as he writes there, he doesn't say much about the person on the throne. He really speaks about the throne and how there was just one throne. Uh, That should encourage you tonight as in our society we see on the news there's prime ministers, there's kings, there's people who are ruler over certain areas, there's even a a grand leader and authority in South and North Korea, even the emperor is in Japan. We have different names with people who are seemingly important but the Bible tells us there was a throne set up and there was one who sat on the throne. He describes the person who sits on the throne with Two two descriptions and that's all we get. He, he actually says that he has the appearance of jasper. Jasper means uh, basically the color of a diamond. That it, whenever the light would hit it, it was translucent. You can see through it. That the person seated on the throne was pure. But also the other word is carlinian, which is also the, the idea of a kaleidoscope. That this person on the throne illuminated all light and also translucent or transparent. We can see here that when he seated on the throne that all around him was a rainbow of emerald. That the light illuminated there and it was a rainbow that it faded from the edges but that person was seated on the throne. And if you remember as we study Revelation chapter number 4 together, the one who was seated on the throne is called the Ancient of Days. But then later we see in the same chapter was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, which was Jesus, the Lamb. We see the even though uh, in, in the context of chapter number seven, and I even though Solomon had a throne that he had hammered into place that was covered in gold and ivory, there is a throne now. Because if we were to go to Israel, then we do an archaeological dig, we try to find the remnants of, of Solomon, we might find a nameplate here and there, some imprint, we might even find a coin with Solomon's head on it, and we say, Well, long live King Solomon, even though he is dead and gone. There's still a king who still on the throne today and all his power and his glory and he beckons his people to come to him as the people of Israel will go to Solomon. We have already read in the previous chapters when people had issues. Remember the women who had one baby they were quarreling over and they go to Solomon in his wisdom and he handles the situation. Well, the one who gave Solomon all wisdom is beckoning you. If you need help and if you need understanding, come unto me. It says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we'll find help in our time of need. So whatever your ailments, whatever you're lacking and whatever you need, go to the throne room. Don't stay down in the drudges. Don't stay down in the basement. Don't stay down in the pit with the rest of the people wallowing in their sorrows. Go into the throne room. Go to where he's calling you and he's saying, Cry to me and I will hear you. Like it says in Jeremiah 33 verse 3. He says, Crying to me and I will show you things you did not know. Things you did not understand. Amen, preacher. Amen. I want to let you know that, that, that we're going to be looking at verse number 13 now. You're saying, What about all these other things? Well, these are the measurements of the, the cedars. We see that he talks about the foundations of the stones that were going into the house of the Lord and also into the house of, of um, Solomon. But in verse 13 start to shift. We see that the temple furnishings start to get mentioned now. And in verse 13 we see King Solomon sent and bought forth harem of Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Nephtali. And his father was the man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom and understanding and skill for making any work in bronze. And he came to King Solomon and did all his work. If you remember back in chapter number 5, Solomon made a deal with a man whose name was Harem. This is not the same man because it gives a background of who this Harem was. This is not the same one because we understand that the Bible always backs up this, this word. If it says I, I, I have the final authority that Scripture backs up Scripture, there are no contradictions in the Bible. There was a couple of weeks ago when I didn't finish my thoughts because sometimes I think faster than I'm talking, believe it or not. And I will be on the next point and forget to finish what I'm saying. A couple of weeks ago, I said, the Bible is full of mistakes. Absolutely. And I didn't finish that. And you were like, well, wait a minute. What do you mean by mistakes? The mistakes that we see in the Bible are not literature mistakes. It's not that God said this and something was written down wrong. The mistakes that we see in the Bible is all of humanity. Everything that we did, that's the mistakes. We see where Adam and Eve fell. That's the mistake. Where Noah got drunk in his vineyard after the great flood, that was a mistake. And he cursed his own son he, or his grandson. We see the mistakes in the Bible and all we see is God's grace. That's Let me clarify there. But we understand here that the Bible always backs up the Bible. It does not conflict with each other. Whenever you read something, you say, well, I don't understand that. Or that looks like a contradiction. It's because you don't have an understanding and you don't have a, a full grasp of what it says. Amen? The, the fault always falls with us. We believe that the Bible is infallible. That means it's perfect. So when you read harem here, you might say, well, well, why is Solomon getting the king from over in Lebanon to come and do all his bronze work? No, that, this is, it actually tells you who Hiram is. He tells you he's from the tribe of Naphtali. His His father was from Tyre. So we have an understanding here. The Bible took in out of context as pretext and that's called error. Always read it in context. Don't just pull a Bible verse out and use it and say, well, see, the Bible's wrong because it says this. You have to put it in context. You know we fall for those things when we watch MSNBC or CNN or pick whatever ABC. You pick whatever letters you want for winning news network where they take somebody's words and take them out of context and spin it to say something totally different. People do that and not our time and season. In fact, we've gotten so used to sound bites and so used to hearing what people say saying, we go, I don't believe that's right. And we'll go research it and find out it was said in context that was taken out and used as a weapon. Let us not use our Bible like a fortune cookie where we just open our fortune cookie and read little one little line and use it as something we apply to our lives. Imagine a, a, a college student says, Lord, what should I do? And he takes his Bible and he just opens it up and puts his finger in Ecclesiastes and it says, do whatever you do, but do whatever. All of your hand, do it all your might. And he wanted to sin, but he just got, he used his Bible like an eight ball and just decided okay, well God told me to sin, so I'm going to sin. See how we can use our Bible wrongly? That's why we must rightly divide the word of truth. Amen. So all I'm doing tonight is warning you to keep the Bible in context, to study it and understand it. But so tonight we see that that we see that this man was a son of a widow from death entirely. He was also a worker in bronze. We also understand that this man is also uh, is also like a foreshadowing of what we saw back in the book of back in the book of Exodus. Whenever Moses had someone who was gifted and blessed by God, his name was Bezalel. His name was Bezalel, and he was one who was gifted in crafting and and molding with bronze. And God is the one who gave the gift of artistry. He gave the gift of working with metal and working with his hands. Let this weigh on your heart and mind today. Yes, you can learn a skill by progression and learn skill by doing it over and over. We teach our children in our household, you get better by con- continuing trying and doing it over and over. But that—that that is also a gift from God. Artistry and all the arts are a gift from God. And we see here that God blessed this man, Haram, to be used in the temple of God to bring glory to his name. So we now we're going to be looking at verse 21 tonight. I, I'm going to let you know from 13 on down to 21 that this man who was used by God greatly to decorate the, the, the house of God, that he used his abilities to hammer out bronze and also pomegranates. Pomegranates was a symbol that was used for victory and also fertility and also for the coming kingdom of God, of, uh, of the uh, first fruits. We see there's pictures of the cherubim. We also see uh, uh, engravings of angels. And uh, we see that in verse number 20, there's also 200 pomegranates in a row. We also see that there are many different types of uh, ornaments and uh, decorations in the temple. Now we get to verse 21, and we see that he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on... The south called Jacob, and he set up the pillar on the north, and he called its name Boaz. Now, as we look at these, I want to let you know in verse 22, on the top of the pillars were, were lily work, and thus the name of the pillars were finished. The work of the pillars were finished. Now to understand what we're looking at here, the names were predetermined. They were decided by Solomon. Solomon chose the names of the pillar, so Harem just hammered it out and he designed it. But I want to let you know that Jacob means he establishes. So when you walk into the temple, right there on the porch, the front of the temple, one of the pillars is Jacob and it means he establishes. But the other one is named Boaz and it means in his strength. So put these two together when you're walking into the temple he establishes in his strength that's what you're calling the front of the temple when you walk in. So what he's doing is making a statement there on the front of the temple that God has established this in his strength. You might say that, well, Hiram could get the credit or even Solomon had the wisdom to build the temple. Or really it was David who had enough sense to gather up the materials to build the temple. But no, all credit seems like no matter how much you detail and follow the, follow the money, you follow the signs. it all goes back to God. He establishes in his strength. I know that in Isaiah 44 verse 8, when God is talking about his strength, he says, fear not. Nor be afraid. Have I told you from the old, and then I declared it? And are you my witness? There is a God besides me. Is there no rock? I know not of any. In Isaiah 46, 9, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. In First Kings chapter number 8, which we'll get to here in a moment, and verse number 16, It says that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. What you see when you walk up to the front of the temple is Jacob and Boaz. And it means the Lord establishes in his strength. We understand that God gets all credit for building the temple, even though there's a craftsman there. But who gave the craftsman the ability to build the temple? I don't care where we flip it, scrip it, drip, fall back, reverse it, flip it, whatever you want to do, that God will get all glory in every facet of the Bible as well as in our lives. It's by his strength he establishes the earth. Is by His strength and His power that He holds all things together. So we see on the front of the temple two pillars God in His strength establishes. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 39, Know therefore today and I lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath and there is no other. So on the front it's like a mighty billboard. The two pillars when you are there to come and bring your sacrifice to the Lord at the temple you see blaring the two temple pillars that say God in his strength establishes. And what does that mean to you as a little Jew who's living under the first covenant? That God established the temple that God is the one who leads the nation that he is God. But also we see back in Judges of an instance where the very strong of us and and, and, an issue of two pillars. If you remember in Judges chapter 16 we read about a man named Samson. Samson was blinded by his sin and he was in the house of the Philistines. If you remember the story of that judge he had fell into temptation with Delilah and he was the strongest of God's people. I mean he was bad. He was killing people with a gourd and he had a jaw of a donkey and killing all kinds of Philistines but they overcame him by his temptations and falling into blatant sin before God so he's there in the temple in Judges chapter 16 verse 25 and when their hearts will marry he said call Samson that he may entertain us so that they called Samson and two out of the prison and he entertained them and they made him stand between two pillars there we see two pillars again now the two pillars in this house were holding up the house The strength was actually found in the pillars. Where was the strength of the tabernacle? The the strength were not in the pillars, but in the God who established it. Amen. In in fact, in Judges chapter 26, uh, chapter 16, verse 26, it says, And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, that I might lean against them. We see here that the man who had strength who thought that the strength was in him, who thought it was bulletproof, who thought that he couldn't be brought down because pride entered his heart. He wouldn't be a statistic. He he actually read in the Bible where if you play with sin, sin would overwhelm you and take you out. But he now is now blinded. He's now being used as a clown. He's now being used as entertainment in the house of the wicked. So he's asking for the two pillars. The very strongest of us is now leaning between two pillars and the house of the enemies of God. And Samson, in verse 29, grasped the two pillars in the middle on which the house rested. And he leaned with his weight against him, his right hand on the left and one on the right and on the other. I want to let you know that when Samson pushed the house down, it destroyed him, the enemies of God. That's the best we can do. We can only destroy us. We're good at killing us. In fact, many of us Smoke things that cause us to kill us. We eat things that kill us. We, we sit around and hurt ourselves because that's what we're doing. We're natural disasters uh, waiting to happen. That's what we do. We're destructive. We destroy ourselves and everybody around us. But when God establishes by His strength, what does that do? Uh, Wherever God God in His strength builds the house and He establishes it. But we tear it down. We tear ourselves down and everything else around us. In fact, what I'm doing is showing you that the plan that His power and His strength found at the tabernacle uh, now between the the entrance where He establishes by His strength is better than the one Samson did. Samson leaned between two pillars and pushed it down and the house came down on him. And now there's two more pillars that are established at the tabernacle. But in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10, this is better than Samson. This is better than the tabernacle. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. He establishes that by his strength. Who does that? Was it Samson? No, it won't Samson. It won't even Samuel. It won't David. It was not even Solomon. It was not even Pastor Kevin or any of our deacons or anybody of our congregation. He, all the, all the main focus of Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10 is I, 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 I will do this. The same one who gave Samson strength. The same one who gave him strength to push the pillars down. The same one who gave wisdom to Solomon to build the two pillars there at the front of the tabernacle. I will establish in my strength. He's still flexing and showing how powerful he is when he says, I will put put my laws into their minds. And I will inscribe it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. That's the strength of God. Amen. As we see the two pillars as a, as a billboard. If you want to look to the strength of God. If you really want to see what God is like. Look to the cross. Amen. The two pillars. They just happen to overlap each other. And there hangs the blessed Son of God, Jesus Christ. Stronger than Samson. More wise than Solomon. Greater than any human who ever walked across the horizon of humanity. There He is, Jesus Christ. He has established that with His strength. He did that. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12. For I will be merciful... Toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. This is God who is so mighty. He has decided to not remember the sins of His people anymore. Overwhelming. Glorious and grand. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 17. Then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He establishes His strength. You know, we, we as human beings, we can forgive. That's about as good as we can do. If we're even able and have strength to do that. But to forget. That, that's that's otherworldly. But the Bible says, He will remember our sins and our deeds no more. He won't even bring them up. He doesn't even keep count. This is Him establishing Himself in strength. That I'm strong enough not only to forgive you, but not to count your past against you. That's establishing yourself in strength. Who else is like this? Who else is like the Lord? Who will forgive your failings and your blatant rebellion and not ever, ever bring it up again? Only the strongest. Only the mightiest. The only one who's seated on the throne the only one who presides over it all greater than Solomon greater than our Oval Office greater than anybody who will ever contend against him he is the one that says I'll write my laws on your mind and on your heart and I'll excuse your sins and not bring it against you ever again in verses 22 to 48 we won't go through them it's the listings of things that Harem created and designed under the direction of Solomon. In fact, Haram was, uh, I told you, a mirror of Exodus chapter 31, 1 through 5. I'll read it to you. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting of stones for setting and the carving of wood, to work in every craft. That it was God who gets all credit. On the day, that last and final day, when there are no more days, at the end of time, when we stand before God, there will be no boasting. There will not be artists standing there basking in their own glory but simply throwing their crowns down at the one who gave them the ability to do anything there will be only one throne that still is still now high and seated high and lifted up now but there are a lot of little thrones around who believe they're higher than him on that day he's going to be knocking crowns off head saying I am the Lord every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am Lord with well, that being said, I want to let you know that that throne that, that does not rival Solomon's but is above it all, it transcends all the thrones, all the leadership, all the bosses and the managers, all the assistant managers, the regional director, all the ones, he's above it all. But in chapter number 8 is where we're going now. In chapter number 8, I wanted to let you know that when Solomon addresses that throne, Something you'll notice in chapter number 8, when Solomon starts to pray, he prays like somebody's listening. He prays because he knows who's listening. As we now have gleaned some high points found in chapter number 7, at this point, Solomon starts to bring all the utensils from the tabernacle. If you remember, that's the tent that, that Moses had there at Gilgal. They bring the, the bronze altar and all those other things and utensils and bowls. But they were put into storage because they replaced him with more uh, utensils and bowls that were used for the, the, the central place of worship. Before this point, the Ark of the Covenant was found in Jerusalem. And, and the altar and the blazing altar and the, and the candlestick was found over at Gilgal. But now he brings it all together into the temple But there was better things that were made that will handle the the weight of a centralized place of worship there at Jerusalem. In verse number 1 of chapter number 8, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. At this point, the people gathered. If you remember in our study in the story of Exodus, we remember the Shekiah glory which is the very essence and the presence of God over the mercy seat. If you remember, there were two angels that were facing each other and there the mercy seat which is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that there was a flame of fire that danced between the two cherubim. Now we can read in our Bibles that it is simply an image, as we read in the Book of Ezekiel, as well as Revelation, as well as the Book of Daniel. That this just a miniature, toned-down version of what's already in glory. For he's seated between the blazed ones, the fiery ones, the the wheel within a wheel, as Ezekiel described them. That there are cherubims that we read in the Book of Revelation, as the angels scream, "Holy, holy, holy!" And that's also found in, in, in the Book of Isaiah. That this a miniature image of what's found in glory. So they take the Ark of the Covenant and now they're marching towards the temple to place it there in the Holy of Holies. And verse number 2, And all the men of Israel assembled to the king at the feast in the month of Aetheum, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the Ark. Notice in verse 3 that it's the the, the the charge of the priest to carry the presence of God. They didn't outsource it. They didn't hire anybody else. It was the job of the priest to minister before the Lord. They're not ministering before the people. And that's true today in the house of the Lord. The minister is not to, to, to service the people but the Lord. And how does the minister serve the Lord? By speaking His word to His people and explaining it plainly plainly. Jesus did the same. When he spoke to the generation he says, uh, he spoke to them in parables and they say, why do you speak to them in parables? He's making it plain to the people. And we spoke about how the people would just simply stop up their ears and go, yeah, 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 and not hear what he's saying plainly when he says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. We are to make it plain. There should be nobody standing before God and say, "I, I didn't understand. I didn't know what he meant. You know exactly what I mean when we say the word of God pointing people to repentance trusting in him as he says he writes his laws on your mind and imprints them on your heart that he would be your God and we would be his people so we see here that the priests are now working and they're carrying up the ark and they took up the ark I also want to let you know that before in the past we've seen where the people of God have moved the ark. If you remember, when Uriah reached out because the ark was on a cart. If you remember, it was on a cart and the oxen stumbled and he reached out to touch the cart. Well, this because the presence of the Lord is not to be moved on a cart. Now, what's a cart made of? Big wheels and boards. Big wheels, big big wheels, big big important people and boards. Boards that come together and make God's decisions. No. We don't need big wheels and boards. What we need is holy ministers that are called by God that carry the presence of God to wherever He says. You feel me? Amen, preacher. Amen. He, he caused them to be priests. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. In verse number five, congregation, I want you to jump into the text on this day. If you heard the trumpet and the worship, if you saw people gathering because they were moving the ark of the Lord to the temple, where would you find yourself? Where would you find, would you find yourself on the golf course that day? I got more important things to do. I can, this is my day off. I mean, I'm going to be honest, but I got other stuff to do. I got to go vote. I got I, to, I mean, my favorite TV show, the, 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 the Panthers are playing. I got, there's other stuff I got to My stories are on and my VCR ain't working, so I'm going to stay home and watch that. Or I got a little ache and pain. I got an ingrown toenail. I need to stay at the house. Would you find yourself away from where God is moving is what I'm asking. Would you find yourself excusing, excusing yourself? Would you find yourself saying, I can't go there because I ain't living right. I can't can't be a part of the people because I'm on the outskirts. Would you use your sin as an excuse to be away from what God is doing? We see here that they were moving and the congregation had assembled. It's like they believed that God was worthy and worth the time to come before the Lord. And I want to let you know that every Sunday and every Wednesday, the same thing happens. God's still moving. His Spirit is still moving. I believe that the power of God is still moving in the hearts of people today, right now, in this moment. God is still moving. There are some churches, they're ashamed of the gospel. Explicitly ashamed. And I'll use an example. Just this past weekend, I know it was close to Halloween. There were festivals, trick or treat, all kinds of ideas you imagine. There were some churches that had fair rides in front of their church. And they had incredible numbers. If you drove by, you probably got stuck in traffic. Look at what are they doing. Dunkin' Booths, funnel cakes, ice cream. There are some churches who are showing movie nights of wicked things that should not ought be shown, a let a, 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 a alone to the people of God. Right. Amen. But you can gather a crowd. Right. The crowd is there. But I tell you, God is not. That's right. Amen. You can gather a crowd. If people show up for free cupcakes, yes. they will, oh, you get away free cupcakes? Where's the line? I'll get in line. But those who want to follow the presence of God, is fouling out of fashion and style. But that's okay. Because we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we believe that He sets the captive free. We believe He wipes away sin. And washes those who were tarnished and stained in their soul. That He forgives and He adopts sin and saves. That message is old and equated. And every church, every church uh, uh, a seminar, they gather you together and say, hey, it started back in the day with purpose-driven life. Warren, uh, Pastor Warren, he came, he wrote a book and he a copy and paste is what we call it in theology. You copy and paste it everywhere and use this philosophy to build a church. But nowhere do I read in the book of Acts where uh, when Paul went to establish a church, he didn't do movie night and give away snow cones. He didn't get around and say, hey, you want to come to a, a fantasy football night? Or you want to come and watch the Super Bowl over here? We're having a party tonight. You want to come and just, we, we'll casually sneak Jesus in at the end. You want to come and get candy in the parking lot and teach your children? Just come into the church parking lot, but don't go inside because it's dangerous in there. Let's just build up a whole crowd for the of having a crowd but don't mention Jesus don't mention his power don't mention his redeeming work because the moment you start preaching the gospel you offend somebody because they love their sin more than Christ That that, it should be secret sensitive there should be coffee in the foyer and you should have programs for my children that that I can get a nap in the pew and get get my kids afterwards and wonder why when they grow up they leave the church and don't want nothing to do with Jesus because I don't live like it at home the responsibility don't, don't fall On your your teachers in the back or the preacher, it begins at home, opening your Bible, studying at home, adhering to the Word of God, following the presence of God, doing what He commands and calls us to do. I know I talked about a lot there in a moment, but we see here that the presence of God is moving and the people are there. Jesus is still moving, lives are still being changed for those who want Him. Not a rock concert and those who want him. Right. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house of the Most Holy, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out the wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen for the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the inside. And they're there to this day. Why do you suppose in verse number 8 the poles were so long? It's because God is holy. And even the priests, when they carried the Ark of the Covenant, they had to deal with the heat from the Shekiah glory. It was overwhelming. The weight of being God's priest is not just the preacher behind the pulpit, but it falls into the pews and it's heavy. It's not easy to serve God in a culture like ours. A culture that, that lifts up death, kill babies in the womb, and worship death. and Vanity is more important. Pride. Get yours before I get it. Dog eat dog. In a culture like that, Serving is not on the forte. It's not palatable. It's not something that people want to do. When husbands are called to love their wives. Love their wives is what it says. Wives. Not the side piece. Not their boyfriends. Not the husbands and their boyfriends. Not the husbands and the girlfriends. Not the husbands and all his wives. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Children, obey and adhere to what your parents command as unto the Lord. Those things are not, not trending. They're not fashionable. They're not fun. And the eyes of the world that's right. and that's heavy. Notice the priests had poles because they couldn't get close to the ark. There were long poles. they weren't right beside the ark because God in his presence would consume them even though they were sanctified and living as holy as they possibly could. Do you see the separation there even between the priest and the holiness of God? It's almost as if God can't coexist with man. It's almost as if Job was telling the truth in Job chapter number 9. How can a man be just before God? How can he be holy and coexist in the presence of God? Well, that's because we have a mediator now. There's one who comes between us and God. Fully God and fully man. Who understands fully Godness and understands fully manness. And that one person, that one mediator is Jesus Christ. And now we can coexist as Jesus bore our wrath that was uh, was poured out on Him uh, 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 by the plan of God Almighty to pour His wrath out on us that we we might receive the righteousness of Christ. The goodness, everything that He ever did that was holy, God-honoring and God-fearing was not accredited to us. And when God sees us, He doesn't see a blank and rebellious sinner anymore. He sees His child who now is part of the family because of the work of Christ. So we even see in the Old Testament shadows of Jesus. See the gap between the priest with the pole uh, carrying the ark. Jesus was there between the priest and the ark. Just like He's with us now. Hey, Amen. I could preach that thing sideways. I lo- okay, let's keep going. We see that the poles can be seen from the inner sanctuary but not from the outside. And there, to this day. Just to remind the priest there's a separation. And there's nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Haram. That the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel. And when they came out of Egypt... In verse number 9, I know you probably remember. uh, Wait a minute. I I thought there was also the the pot of manna. And there was the the rod of Aaron that budded. Well, the Bible actually tells us that they were laid before the ark. There are some theologians and commentaries that said whenever the ark was captured, when Eli fell over and, and died there after the prophecy from Samuel, that when the Philistines opened up the ark, they took those things out, which is possible. I don't know. It's not the stuff in the Bible well I don't know it's the stuff I do know that really bothers me how could he take a wretch like me and save me and redeem me amen preacher so we see here that the only thing that were in the ark was the tablets of stone that Moses put there at the harem now in verse number 9 you might say how did they even know that's in there I don't know I'm just, gonna t- I'm just going to by what the author said I'm just going to tell you that he, he said that the tablets was in there so you know what they was in there amen A lot of people speculate what happened at the beginning. They say that gases exploded, that that creation just spontaneously combusted and made everything. And how do they know? Well, I'm a professor. I've studied for years. I'll I'll take an eyewitness account. I'll say, in the beginning, God, he saw it, so I'm going to go on that. Okay, is that okay with you? Okay, Okay, yes, thank you. So we see that the stones that Moses placed in there, the harem, and he made a covenant with the people of Israel, and they came out of Egypt. In verse 10, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister before all of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Church, if you remember, this happened quite often when they were in the wilderness. At the tent of meeting when Moses would go, and he would speak to the Lord as a friend face to face. And it says that His Shekiah glory would be over the temple. And it would, fill, it would fill the tent. And Moses would come out. But here we see that the, 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 the Shekiah glory fills the temple. Or well, if you remember when their trek was through the wilderness, the children of Israel would follow the Shekiah, the cloud. And wherever it went, they went. But here it rests in the temple. To finally say that Solomon I'm pleased with what you did. And my name is here. My presence is felt here. I, I, I'm here. And it ran the priests out of the temple. I don't know if you've ever left church before. And you walk out the door and said, I felt the Lord today. I, I got goosebumps. I felt a tickle. I, I just felt God. No. In Isaiah chapter number 6. It says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train fueled the temple. And it says that in the book of Revelation that he fell as a dead man before the Lord. And Isaiah says that he came undone. That means like taking an old t-shirt and pulling a thread out. I don't know if you got an old t-shirt. I got t-shirts older than my kids. And if you pulled the thread out, it's going to fall apart. That's what Isaiah says, I came undone in the presence of God. If God really showed up, you're not going to get goose pimples. You're not going to get a chill, or your neck and your your hair on your neck ain't going to stand up. You're going to die in the presence of God. That's why the priests ran out of the, the holiness of God. They ran from his presence. The same reason they crucified Jesus, because he was holy. We can't have you around. You're making us look bad. We're the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're the ones who are doing all right, right Jesus. And you're talking about loving everybody, being a friend of sinners. Jesus, you got to die. You're too holy. You're too good. The priests ran for the same reason we crucified Jesus. Because of holiness. So how do you reconcile the two things? When well, you look at the front of the tabernacle, you see He establishes in His strength. Who's strong enough To be established and have strength through it all. And that one is Jesus. Jesus has established His name. In fact, I want you to think about it deeply. He's the only person who ever exists who split time in two. There was a time before Him and then there's a time after Him. Jesus, just Jesus. No one is like Him. He's in a category all by Himself. He reconciles and He saves. But I want to let you know that as the people ran... That Solomon looks at the temple and he starts to pray. In verse number 12, And Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled all the promises of his his mouth to David, my father. First of all, in verse 15, God keeps his promises. If you don't know what his promises are, it's because you're not looking over what he said to you. I won't leave you or forsake you. I won't cast you out. Never have I seen the righteous children begging for bread. Those are his promises to you, church. He's not writing checks that bounce. He's not someone who overextends and says, Oh, I'm sorry, I won't be able to deliver. God keeps his promises every time. He is the promise keeper, the oath maker. The one who is now giving the promises to David and his, his, his ancestors and all those that come after his descendants. He's the one who gives the promises and he's the one who keeps them. Notice it will not David making oaths and covenants to God. It was God making covenants to David and God still does that today to His people. Amen. Since the day I brought my people of Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house. That my name might be there. But I choose David to be over my people Israel. As we talked about before, about the election of God. He had David had brothers, but God chose David. Why? I don't know. But God chose David. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 9, He says there's two twins, one I hated and the other I loved. Why? And he also says, and I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Is that not true? He just decides to have mercy. It's nothing that David warranted. Well, he killed a giant. It's only by God's power and his might that he killed a giant. It was God all along. But I choose David to be over my people. He didn't choose Saul, he chose David. He didn't choose Samuel or Eli or one of Eli's children. He chose David. Why did he choose you tonight to save? Well, I'm just smarter than everybody else in the room. That might be true. But if you were smart, you wouldn't have said that. (laughs) You might say, well, I come from a Christian background, but that's, that's, that's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the fact that God saves sinners. Why does He do it? For His glory. Who will sing of His praises more than the one who owed Him the most? And that is the ones that are saved today. We could not strong arm our salvation from Him. We could not open His grip and take the salvation from Him. He simply gave it to us. Chose us and redeemed us by His own might. He established by His own strength. It was God. Now it was... In the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 18. But the, but the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house but your son, who shall be born to you and shall build the house for my name. Verse 20. Now the Lord was fulfilled the promise that he made. Again in verse 20. He keeps his promises. I wonder, congregation, have you ever been around a group of people and a name come up, somebody who lives around the corner, Jimbo, whoever, whatever, put whatever name you want there, and you start to hear the reputation of that person. Oh, they owe me this. or They borrowed my weed eater, never brought it back. They ran over my dog and never said, I'm sorry. They're just rotten people. They're horrible people. They'll steal your pocketbook right out from under you when you're standing there. And if you ain't careful to take your socks right off your feet with your shoes still on. Do you hear them talk about that person? And it will affect you because you hear about the reputation of the person while you're standing there. But I will tell you this, as you read this, you keep hearing Solomon saying, He keeps His promises. He keeps His promises. He keeps His promises. Is that what you hear tonight? That He keeps His promises? Now the Lord has fulfilled His promises In verse 20, that he made, For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel. As the Lord promised, I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And here I have provided the place for the ark, in which the covenant of the Lord that he made for our fathers has brought them out of the land of Egypt. In verse 22 on, I encourage you to read that. It's... Solomon's prayer of dedication at this point he's going to pray over the tabernacle not the tabernacle to the temple he's going to pray over the temple now I want to let you know that when Solomon prays he's speaking as if he knows God is listening Jeremiah 29 12 when you call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you in verse 20 uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 26 and 27 likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not even know how to pray as we are but the spirit itself Intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the one who searches the heart knows that is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. So if you don't even have the words tonight, he sends the words. And Psalm 17:6, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words, the psalmist writes. And Psalm 61, 61, 1: Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. In Psalm 39, 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not your presence from um, my tears, for I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Again, in Psalms 54, 2, O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. And Psalm 61, verse 1, Hear my cry, O Lord, listen to my prayer. Again, O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God, Jacob, Selah. In Psalms 85, Four, verse 8. Hear my prayer O Lord. Let my cry come to you in Psalms 102 verse 1. We see over and over that God hears our prayer. The psalmist pleads with God. Hear me when I pray to you. I, I want you to be uh, aware of the words you use when you pray. I want you to take inventory of your own heart, if not today, tomorrow. Think deeply about the things you pray. Do you pray amiss? Do you just humble and mumble to yourself if you're just complaining to yourself? Or are actually you speaking to God, the one on the throne, who actually hears your prayer? And if you have audience with Him, do you waste your time and God's time with complaints or murmurings or even doubt in your prayers? God, I doubt that you even have time to hear me today but so and so is sick or uh, I doubt you even see me in my situation let alone care but anyway let me tell you about the situation or do you come boldly before the throne of grace bringing your petitions and your situations to him saying God this is what's going on and God I need you to help him I need you to help me God I know you're all powerful I know you're high and lifted up and you see all the details that I don't see but Lord I'm asking you uh, not because I, I You owe me anything, not because I'm that important, but you beckon me to ask of you of anything by your power and your strength. Here I am, Lord, asking you, like the song says, here I am, Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It, It must be a song because it must be true. So here we are, Lord. Here we are tonight. Whatever it is, we don't need to go to Solomon's throne. We don't need to go to the magistrate around the way. We don't need to go to the courthouse. We don't need to talk to the sheriff. We don't need to speak to the mayor. We need to go to the Lord. Amen. Whatever it is. Well, well, I don't know what your issue is. I don't, your issue is much bigger than me. I want to let you know. Much more powerful than me. Probably been around longer than me. But there's one who's the ancient of days. Who's bigger and all powerful and all understanding. Maybe you've dealt with it for decades maybe you don't know what to do with it now maybe it's some brand new I want to let you know that he ain't brand new Amen. he knows how to handle it Amen. take it to the Lord in prayer that's what